Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Dr. Ellen Lem, a professor of English and Gender Studies at UW-Milwaukee, Waukesha. Dr. Lem did some very interesting research in the field of aging, and we learned the results in her new book, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. Here, we'll find some critical learning regardless of our age. Dr. Ellen Lim, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to talking with you. We've already chatted a bit, so I'm looking to even more conversation and letting our listeners know that this is really a good, engaging conversation surrounding a really important book, your new book, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. And one thing about it, when I was thinking about gray matters, matters can be a noun, but it can also be a verb. So I think it's kind of an interesting play on words. I don't know if that was necessarily your intention. Oh, well, I am an English, I'm an English (laughs) professor. So um, yeah, we really went back and forth with the title a little bit. Um, Originally, it was supposed to be Silver Seekers, like a play on Silver Sneakers, the Uh program that gets seniors kind of gym memberships. And um, publisher didn't like that. And they wanted seasoned citizens. And I just for some reason, I kept thinking of like paprika every time, like, you know, so I really had to fight against it. But um, Gray Matters, we both agreed with. And so, yeah, there's a lot of wordplay, um, not only on the matters, trying to emphasize that I think that this time in life is really important and undervalued. But I try to talk about topics that are of most importance, I'm hoping, to people who are um, in their 60s and becoming older. And then the gray, in addition, you know, has uh, all kinds of nuances. So, yes, it's a it's a very literary title in many ways. And I do pay tribute as well to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, who I benefited from in in doing the title. So I wanted to make sure to credit that this wasn't, you know, my own uh, innovation that I'm borrowing and indebted to the idea of the Black Lives Matter that took that word matters and gave it so much uh, poignance and so much meaning and power. And that's wonderful, actually, to make that kind of acknowledgement and, you know, kind of bow to that because each area is really important in itself. And then I think we find that how we need to be in this together and supporting each other. Definitely right. It is a collective. It is a, this is, we're not going to change views of aging by, you know, separating people into groups, boomers versus millennials and thinking it in oppositional, we really, the the best movements are from a collective of people of all different ages, different um, racial, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic. I mean, that really makes a movement. And so um, I'm really kind of calling for that as well in my book, for people to come together and change their, their view of aging as something to be dreaded. And that then speaks to the point. Who is this book for? It's really for all of us. Uh, regardless of our age, we can learn something 
about ourselves, about people. Uh, at a younger age, we can look forward to what that might look like, people's experiences, and really incorporate that, I think, into helping us to live even a better life. Yeah, and that's really my hope, is that people at every age read this and it opens up their minds and challenges them to think in different terms because, you know, this is not a simple how-to book. Like, this is how you age. Um, This is how to understand how many people have lived their lives and how it impacts them um, and how uh, we can really benefit from uh, not thinking in terms of like stereotypes about age, but actually, like, what do we, what, have, what can we learn from people who have had long lives? Like, what do they tell us about living? And that was like one of the survey questions I put that I learned a lot from was I asked people, um, what would you tell your 20 year old self? And they were fascinating, you know. Um, people had all kinds of advice, you know, everything from slow down, be more careful in your marriage partner, don't rush into uh, into marriage. Um, uh, just, I mean, they were all over the board, but so there's so many uh, pearls of wisdom that I was able to, you know, incorporate throughout from that advice, and that was just one question on the survey. There were over 20 of them. And the survey, you actually were able to speak to or get answers from about 200 people. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. And a lot of people um, then um, wanted to follow up interviews. So the surveys were done uh, anonymously, of course, and they were done in both. uh, There was an electronic form for those who were tech savvy and people could have a link and they sent it they sent it in and they could share the link. So that's how it got spread from um, coast to coast and everywhere in between. But there was also a hard copy survey. And so once people took the survey, there were a lot of people who thought, oh, I really enjoyed giving my giving my views on this. And so they said, I'm available to be interviewed. So I did follow up interviews with several people um, and then you know, really got more from, from doing that. So, yeah, there's a variety of primary research in the book. I also um, did a few experiential uh, types of things that I talk about. I joined a co-housing group to learn about co-housing, and then I went and witnessed um, work that's being done with, in the creative arts with Alzheimer patients. So, um, and included my observations on on that. So I feel like that some of these things maybe make the book a little bit unique in that um, I do have the the survey results, the interviews, and then also some of these hands-on um, direct observations of uh, issues that relate to topics that I cover in the book, like housing and dementia, things like that. And would you say that dementia, and you just mentioned Alzheimer's as well, does that come up as perhaps one of the key concerns that uh, affects people in their senior years in in terms of their thinking? Right. I mean, that really came through in the surveys. People are really terrified about 
um, about dementia and, and specifically Alzheimer's. Sometimes they mention, you know, one or or the other. Um, but yeah, the, and I do think that that is important to recognize that the fear is in some degrees unwarranted and um, because right now the amount of people who are the percentage of people who are affected by Alzheimer's is going down Um, we will see more cases just from the sheer volume of people who are over 65 but the amount of people who are actually experiencing it um, is is going down Um, and yet People are, are really anxious about it. Anytime they forget, you know, the neighbor's first name, they immediately is like, okay, there it goes. You know, my memory is 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 leaving me. And uh, you know, people refer to something as a senior moment. So I I do see people being very very worried about it. But I feel as if um, you know what I try to do in the book is to um, try to look at it in a different ways, like not only bringing the statistics about um, what we know to be, you know, it it only really affects, the early Alzheimer's affects a very small percentage, and then it goes up as people get older, but it's, you know, not as many people are affected as, as people are led to believe. But then also to just show that people who have um, various stages of dementia that the that for many the quality of life is not is not bad and so I tried to bring in the voices of those even who who are experiencing it um, through some works there's a, a writer Richard Thomas who wrote so eloquently about his Alzheimer's so I'm really trying to challenge the viewpoint um, one of the things researchers have noticed that a lot of what we hear in terms of stories about Alzheimer's are from caregivers, but that there's a difference between what caregivers, their view of it, and people themselves who have, who who are uh, experiencing uh, forms of dementia. And it is so important to share those good stories uh, because too often the negative maybe make the press or, you know, get... Uh, carried on forward to get the good news stories and and how people live and live well is important so that that people embrace that more than thinking of the negative side. Exactly, and and that's why I really was struck with my colleague's work, um, Anne Basting, who um, did win a MacArthur Genius Award for her work with the creative arts with Alzheimer's and. She has done, I mean, she is putting on plays um, with with patients who have Alzheimer's. She is doing, um, there have been art shows at the Milwaukee Art Museum. I mean, she has really been a leader in uh, the creative part that remains, um, that trying to de-emphasize memory. We always think, like, memory is so important, but, you know, it's, there are, there are other aspects that are important, and creativity does not die. And so um, people who may not be able to remember uh, what they had for breakfast the next day, but they can still participate in this fantastic storytelling that she has developed um, internationally now called Time Slips, and that was 
what I watched where people are shown a picture and then together they collectively tell a story about the picture. So creativity remains um, even if people are losing some of their their memories, uh, particularly the short-term memory. And that is so, so key, and I think it it warrants giving it, uh, you know, a, a little bit of time, more time focus. It, it is with the arts that that creative part of the brain. We don't know which part it it will trigger, but it might be in. I, I've read in the past about doing artwork itself, painting and and drawing has has been able to channel. Uh, some people who are dealing with memory issues that they're able to to do this kind of activity. So t- to know that and to search for that, I think is really important. I think so too. Yes, and so and I you know people shared with me artwork that was done by parents who um, had who had you know severe dementia, but you know the artwork was absolutely beautiful and was even um, part of art shows. And then, you know, one of the people I feature in the book as well is a friend's father who had Alzheimer's who played the piano um, Mm -hmm. up until his death. And he, uh, all the songs by heart. And so, you know, he didn't have a lot of recognition of of family members even, and yet he, you know, there's videotapes of him that I was able to see of him at the piano just with flourishes, <laughs> you know, so it's not just like he's playing, you know, Mary had a little lamb, he's like playing, you know, Gershwin mm-hmm. and, um, you know, with uh, all kinds of, um, you know, added touches with his fingers. And it was just really incredible uh, to see that, to be able to witness uh, even though there were some obvious, you know, severe mental losses, but there were still parts that were essential to him. I have a picture of him as like a very young man and him, you know, 70 years older, still at the piano, um, because that was just central to who he was. And so these are the kinds of things, these experiences that I think really need to be known and shared and understood so that while things change, change is just part of our life. It may look differently, but it's not uh, dismal. There's still quality. There's still joy that can be present. Exactly. I I could not agree with you more. And uh, we do see that in several places um, in the books. Not only, I mean, several of the writers that I include are in their 90s. Um, so uh, one of the U.S. poet laureates, Donald Hall, he had written a book in his 80s, and then he wrote another one when he was, um, you know, in his 90s, Notes on 90s. That was one of the ones that has a very um, open discussion of sexuality of uh, with he and his wife, and that was in his Notes on 90s. And uh, another artist that I um, bring out, as Louise Bourgeois, who was a sculptor, and this is a good example of your change. So she had produced a lot of like very big, heavy sculptures at different points, but so she changed some of her technique, and then by the end, um, some of the pictures that were um, that I had in there were part of a show that it was at a Museum of Modern Art. Um, she was like in her late, late 90s. I think it's some of her most beautiful work. So it's not, you know, 
bronze sculptures anymore. These were uh, things that she did with watercolor, with fabrics and other things. So she changed according to maybe like her physical strength, but Mm -hmm. they're beautiful. And, you know, thank goodness she did not say to herself like, Oh, who does who does art into their eighties? You know that's ridiculous. I I should just retire. She just made changes, and so fortunately, we have a lot more beautiful art because she embraced that. And oh, that is so beautiful and so heartening. Again, that needs to to be retold and retold again because of knowing that. We changing and adapting. We're not one static thing for like twenty years, right? (laughs) There's always change, right? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I another just one other artistic example of it that this really struck me um, was that I had learned about Matisse, and that Matisse had been um, he was. Uh, when he had some kind of, I think it was a form of cancer surgery, and he was and then had was mostly in a wheelchair. That's when he decided to do the cutouts that are became his famous collages. That was when he was sort of immobilized and couldn't walk. That he created the gorgeous collages that we have that have made stained glass windows and everything, and that was because he was. He was confined to a wheelchair, so he couldn't paint the canvases in the same way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he gave us something else. And um, so I, I do feel um, that those really are something to draw inspiration from, that reminders to ourselves that um, we just have to change and adapt and find new ways to, to lead meaningful lives um, like so many have. As the subtitle or the next part of the title is, finding meaning in the stories of later life. Finding that meaning is that inspiration and seeing how others have done it and and feeling like, okay, you know, I'm just going to be evolving. Hopefully that evolution is growing as well. Exactly, right. And, you know, I, um, I want people to not think like, oh, I'm saying you have to like, run a marathon when you're, you know, because there's a tendency to take um, uh, senior superstars Mm. and hold them up um, as, you know, look what they did. And so it's not, it's not a race. It's not a competition. It's just a way to feel that even if, you know, a person is uh, immobilized in some ways or they're not able to have some strengths or abilities or things that they had in the past, that it doesn't mean necessarily that they should devalue themselves as a person, that they just need to find a way to um, still do things that give them a sense of purpose and that are fulfilling. Um, And so just not being able to see everything in what our abilities that we once had, but like think about what would be, you know, a purposeful way to live one's life. And that could be, you know, taking care of a foster kid. And, you know, I think um, that people need to realize that there's all kinds of ways to that are a purposeful life that don't involve, um, you know, traveling around the world with Doctors Without Borders. Mm-hmm. Like people can 
give purpose in their daily lives. Um, and, and, you know, the research is that they, they live longer um, as a result of it. Um, and it's interesting. Um, I was just reading a novel uh, just this summer, and uh, I'm not sure, like, why I picked it up, but it was called... Um, it's called like the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry. And it's about a person who retires um, from, he works, has worked at a brewery and um, somebody, an old coworker um, um, comes into his life and um, it sent by sending a postcard saying that she's sick and uh, she lives somewhere in England far away. And he decides to go see her and um, by walking, he, and, and it's just a really interesting story that happens that he, and I think what he didn't realize was that he needed purpose. He needed something in his life um, that was meaningful. And so he walks like, across England to see this former coworker. And I felt like that novel really represents what the researchers have said about um, that idea of people wanting to have a, have meaning and have something that makes them feel good about themselves. That, that that goes on forever. And, you know, the more we can act on that, the more satisfied people will feel about their lives. Exactly. And so much of um, maturing, living many years and then decades of life, typically we'll pick up some wisdom. Hopefully we're picking up wisdom so that looking at our senior citizens, uh, the older generation, rather than, you know, someone to be scorned, we used to revere this. And I think still in Asian cultures, seniors are revered. It's not so much here in, uh, in North America, is it? Exactly. There really is a difference. And um, I was really struck weeks ago I went to Botanical Gardens in Chicago and was in the Japanese garden and I saw a plant there and there was a sign by it and said um, this type of plant is pruned in a way to make it look old because in Haitian cultures there's so much reverence and appreciation of people who are older that this plant, that they make it look old so that it, it gives it a higher status. And I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> I can't imagine that happening here where we would, you know, we would want anything to necessarily look old. You know, there's such a, um anti-aging commercial stream going on, you know, of anti-aging. Anti- so that we really are sending the opposite message um, which really is in contrast to other cultures who have a lot more appreciation for, you know, years that people put together for experience and, you know, respect that aspect. Thinking of the plant and wanting to have it look aged and, you know, thinking of, yeah, as you said, our culture is to be looking young. I think of the actress Diane Keaton. Mm-hmm. And I just admire her greatly for aging gracefully, I would say, that she just uh, continues to live her life and she still is working. I, I, I'm not even sure what age she is, in her 70s. Right. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, at least. Yes. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of actresses like that. And that's why, you know, I really was happy to showcase some films in the book, um, like Book Club, 
that has uh, Candice yes. Bergen in it and, uh, you know, Jane Fonda. And so I was really happy when some of these films were released and to be able to, to bring them up because um, older women are being able to find some roles. And I think there's a need certainly for more. But, uh, yeah, um, another actress that comes to mind for me is Frances McDormand, mm. who um it has written a lot about refusing to abide by Hollywood standards for uh, older actresses, and she's just taken on projects herself. So um, one of the ones that I think is really powerful and I talk a lot about in the book is Olive Kitteridge. It was a novel by Elizabeth Stroud, and then Frances McDormand turned it into an HBO miniseries. So she starred in it, she produced it, she directed it, she did everything. Um, and in it, you know, she's not trying to, like, cover the gray. Um, she's not trying to cover her wrinkles. She recognizes that we respect Olive Kitteridge because she is a person who's had a full, complex life, and she really shows that. She really brings it to the forefront. So I just have a lot of admiration for her as well. Yes. We need more of that, or at least appreciate the the films that we have that portray that, because I think that that has more of the ring of truth and authenticity to it. Exactly, right. Um, And, you know, I do also point out some films that are problematic. So talk about one called Grandpa, where they have somebody who is like, you know, in their 20s, playing an older person with every stereotype in the book, you know, from the hunched over to all kinds of, you know, you take your stereotype, it's done in that. And that's, that's really problematic because then that just calls people to like let's like laugh at old people and it makes it seem as if it's okay and it's really it's dismissive it's it's disrespectful and uh, and then you know it backfires on people because then they're going to be more freaked out about being old yes. because um, who wants to be laughed at who wants to be you know, an object of mockery. Nobody I know. Um, and so I do think that, you know, that's one of my intents in Gray Matters is to talk about culture that is brings a, a more realistic and uh, a more positive view of the aging process versus ones that are just being played for laughs and uh, you know, even talking about the grandpa in The Simpsons, how, you know, we're supposed to just laugh at him. And so some people might say that's harmless, but um, I don't think that it is. I feel like when I see examples of people being treated well in literature and film and television and shown as um, people that you would want to um you know, embrace and who look as if they have lives that are 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 complex. Uh, that does a lot more for all of us as a society than just recycling the same jokes over and over again. Yes, and I think it really ought to challenge us to think about. We think a thought is small or an action is small, but it really ripples out. And if it's a negative one, it's going to ripple out greater that way. If we do positive things, and they'll ripple out to being a big thing and important. So I think we need to really uh, question those kinds of reactions, don't we? 
Exactly. I think that's great. Yeah, just being more conscious of media. I mean, I think that people are not aware of uh, ageism like they are about racism. Um, Something that happened the other day, some of my colleagues put something up on Facebook. It's a a popular meme, but um, it gets used in different ways. But it was about boomers. And the message of it was that boomers are drawn towards like racism and homophobia and all of this stuff. And then that young people are more enlightened. And, you know, I called her on it right away and just said, this is damaging. You know, I think, you know, before I was there, everybody put the the ha-ha emoji, like, oh, it's so true, you know. And then I said, I actually think that's ageist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are we making the assumption that because someone was born within a ser- certain period of time that they are going to be um, more susceptible to racism, homophobia? You you know, you pick your bad-ism and they're, they're more likely to it. And so the person said, like, oh, I had no idea um, mm. that that was ages. I didn't even see it. And that's, yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you and all the other people who put the ha-ha emojis um, are not aware of the fact that it is just recycling uh, a negative message that doesn't help anyone. It makes people more afraid to be part of that demographic one day because it's a it's a group that's been ridiculed and you know oversimplified to represent some of the bad aspects of society. And that is why I believe this new book Gray Matters: Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life is so critically important. We have so much to learn from this and Dr. Ellen Lem, I am so grateful that you've written this book. We should let people know it's available now. It's best to call your local favorite bookstore and ask them if they have it and if not to order it for them, right? That would be great. Yes, people can also get it through Rutgers University Press, but um yes, I believe in supporting local bookstores as much as possible and uh they should be able to order it and it is fresh off the press. It just got released this month. So it's totally relevant to our lives at any time. And certainly right now, it's a good time to be reading and learning and reaching out in very positive and supportive, loving ways, right? Definitely. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) You got a writer in you as well, it sounds like. (laughs) Oh, well, I don't know about that. But (laughs) I love books and I love reading. And I certainly appreciate uh, those who write so well and are able to share their wisdom with us. And that is you, Dr. Lem. I'm so grateful that we've had this time together this morning. Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking with you. Uh, You really are. You're a very engaging conversationalist, and I I have really good insight. So it was very satisfying being able to have this talk. Well, great. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Dr. Ellen Lem and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Joseph Cardillo. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I'll get right back to you. Also, 
If you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the podcast tab, then look for the show and guest names, and you'll also find an archive of previous ones. I now wish you and your family a day of attention to life, love, and each other. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.